good day, and welcome to Free to be Faithful. I'm moderator Kip Allen. Free to be Faithful is a religious liberty education and awareness program created by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in response to increasing governmental incursions into religious life. People of faith and our institutions have come under increasing attack in recent years from secular sources. Earlier this month, political and religious leaders from across the world gathered in Washington, D.C. for the annual National Prayer Breakfast. Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty Executive Director, the Rev. Dr. Greg Seltz, was one of the attendees. He's my guest today on Free to be Faithful. The National Prayer Breakfast was held earlier this month in Washington, D.C., as it has been every year since 1953. What happens is about 3,500 guests, including people from over 100 countries, get together. Uh, It's uh, hosted by members of the U.S. Congress, and it's organized by the Fellowship Foundation, which is a Christian organization. And it's designed to be a forum for political, social, and business elite to assemble and to pray together. One of those who attended was the executive director of the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty, in Washington, D.C., the Reverend Greg Seltz. Greg, welcome to the program. Good to be here with you again. Greg, what happened? What did you see there at this <laughs> this breakfast? I mean, I, I've seen the news reports of <laughs> President uh, Trump made his uh, appearance and yeah. made his statement. And apparently, uh, from what I saw, Speaker Pelosi, who was also there, was not especially pleased with what he had to say. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, his his speech was uh, or his talk was was very interesting. In fact, you know, it's really what what got me going is when I'm sitting there, and this was a a 24 hour event. I mean, the prayer breakfast in the morning was the the focus, but there was stuff going on before and stuff going on after. And I went to all of it just to see what is this all about? Because there's a lot of people in that room praying for each other. And honestly, Trump's blessing at the end was pretty good. Okay, obviously his talk was. Uh, political in nature, but a lot of the stuff that was there was political in nature. Well, left hand came and right in. Yeah, and that was one of the problems, because the main theme of the prayer breakfast this year was love your enemies. Okay, now when you think about that, I'm sitting there going, well, that's that's obviously a biblical uh, ideal, but it's a biblical ideal that flows from our faith relationship to God in Jesus, and then we can actually overcome these barriers where we don't even get along with folks. Well, we're going to learn to love you as God in Christ loves us. The Bible never tells Caesar or any form of Caesar, any governmental person to love their enemies or turn the other cheek. It's a it's a misunderstanding of how God works through Caesar and how God works through his believers. And so, again, you know, you start to say, well, how do you apply this? Uh, do you want the president? Yes, you want the president and the magistrates and the Congress and the senators to have a, a sense of each other. But that's more like honor and respect one another. What is this idea about loving? Do you want me to put that in policy form. I mean, it's just a strange thing because a lot of people probably didn't know how to apply that. And you can't legislate love? Yeah, and that's the whole point. The government is a force organization. It, it's it's never going to be a benevolence organization. And if it is, it's out of bounds. And so you're exactly right. Free organizations, churches, uh, places where we join freely out of our own will, those are the loving organizations. The coercive organizations are the government. They tax you. They tell you what you're going <laughs> to do or not do. And our founding father said, let's limit their involvement in our lives so that the rest of it can actually be free. Well, here you're, you're confusing all that while you're you're saying, let us pray. And also loving your enemy doesn't necessarily mean approving of your enemy's actions. And I think that's the problem. So here comes a politician who says, I want to defeat my rivals. Okay. And I still love them. Well, most of the people in the room said, well, that doesn't sound right. Well, actually, that is correct. You can you can love your rivals even while you're trying to defeat them in, in the policies and in the things you're doing in government. 
So it was just, again, we needed some, uh, you know, I, I was struggling with how to figure this out. You know, speak the truth in love, the Bible says. So love is still, God defines love and God defines those fundamental truths. I would say even pray the truth in love. And we needed a little bit of dialogue between those two words, truth and love, and we didn't get a whole lot of that. That's unfortunate since it's been going on for so many years. Yeah. And maybe a, a, a misconception, I suppose. And this, this was organized by a Christian group. Right. But there are many people there who were not Christian, uh, who were Jewish or Muslim, Hindu, or even atheists. Right. And and that was, I said, at the very end, this is where it got very confusing to me, because at the very end, we received a blessing as we went our way. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the blessing was, started off, if you believe in one God, many gods, or no God. That's how we started the blessing. And I thought, well, what are we doing here then? I, th- I thought we were praying to God to bless one another, and we're actually using God's word to love your enemies to try to apply it to each other. Well, here's a guy who says, well, I don't even believe in God, but thanks for the prayer. I mean, it was just kind of strange and uh, to walk with that blessing, and I think there's a lot of that confusion. Now, I agree that when it was originally started, it was, it was Christian folks gathered around in, in kind of prayer breakfast all over the the capital, and I think they invited, if I'm correct, President Eisenhower. To yeah, that. it started in 1953. Yeah, where it was more of an official thing in D.C. Yeah, and and the whole point was we need to pray for each other, and and so, but they were people who kind of shared the same values, they shared the same fundamental truths, even if they differed in policy. So you had Democrats and, and Republicans, and they would get together, and they would hash this stuff out. They would deal with that truth stuff. But the Bible actually set the tone for what that truth stuff was. And I guess Eisenhower came and said, yeah, I could sure use some of you guys praying for me, too, because i got to make some hard decisions. So it started that way. But now you got 4,000, 5,000 people in a room, and, and you got all these different things, and you're not really sure what is the fundamental truths that we all hold dear here. I would have liked them to have defined that a little bit more. Well, what about the people you met and spoke to there? What were their expectations? What were they thinking that the prayer breakfast was going to do or wouldn't do? Well, again, I, I think there's this fundamental idea that, well, prayer is just a good thing. And I agree with that. I mean, I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. I have a prayerful attitude towards my friends, my neighbors, and even my enemies, as we talked about that day. But truth is part of that, that prayer thing. And so I, I think at this point, it's become an event, you know, whereas probably before it was an event that had purpose and, and it was supposed to actually help us be good legislators and help us be faithful in our callings and stuff like that. It was almost an event. There were some people there that were there for the right reasons. They were there to, you know, to exercise their vocation and to pray for their leaders. And other people there was just kind of an interesting event to be a part of, you know, and, and all different swaths. I was actually amazed at the people that got me were the, the people from other countries, who were speakers who talked about religious liberty and prayer and, and being f- faithful people no matter what's going on in your culture. Those people usually had a very clear presentation that was powerful because they understood the truth you know, of, of what, how, in, how truth matters and how f- standing for the truth prayerfully is really what it's all about. And they were very uh, persuasive. Especially coming from countries that would have an official religion or or officially were atheists and, yeah. and tried to repress other beliefs. Yeah, that was one of the gals that she was from Albania. And this was the night before, not during the prayer breakfast itself. And, and she talked about, you know, we lived under atheist rule for 50 years and then I heard about Jesus. I never heard about it. And so they became Christian. Well, they also, they suffered in their culture the, uh, you know, like almost like the Sicilian blood guilt kind of stuff. If mm-hmm. you kill mine, I kill yours 
and that kind of thing. And eventually her husband, who was a pastor, was killed oh. and murdered outside of his home. And he said, the blood guilt stops with me. And, and so she talked about forgiveness, forgiving your enemies, and how she hated, you know, the mother who raised the son that killed her because they, they cheered when her husband was murdered. And, and she talked about that. And then she talked about how our relationship to the God, uh, you know, God in Christ is the only thing that can hold us. And it was her own son who grew up and she actually, even as a Christian, still wanted her son to avenge her father. It was kind of in her. And her son said, wouldn't it be great if, if uh, he became a Christian? Wouldn't that be the greatest vengeance? Where, you know, the son who killed, you know. And, and so, again, she said, it was only that that changed my heart and only that. And when she talked about speaking the truth and love and how that the government could never do that. And even culture could never do that. It had to be something as a gift from God. And differentiating those two talks, man, that was powerful. Wow. I, I wish we would have heard more of that clarity. Well, what did we hear? You were talking about a number of talks, a number of speeches that were given. Yeah. What what did you hear that that struck you one way or the other? Well, first of all, the guy that spoke, uh, I think he was from Harvard. You know, he has a book out about loving your enemies. It's very powerful stuff. I actually believe that our Christian worldview um, is still one of the worldviews that that really does undergird liberty and freedom for all more than any other. And then it challenges us to live lives that really can only be defined as God and you know God living through us for the sake of others. So his talk was very very compelling. The, the problem was, again, it, it doesn't differentiate how God works in the world. God works through the magistrates and the government to preserve it. And God works through free, disciplined, religiously motivated people to do this loving your enemies stuff, you know, ultimately. And it would have been nice to see a little bit of that, but that was a great message. The political folks... There were some really good, there were some folks who kind of said, you know, look, we can't solve the big problems in government. We need to be about prayer. We need to have a faith relationship to God. They were, they were right on. So I, I, again, it's just the, there's kind of underlying thoughts that, that undergird these prayers. And one of them, I think, is that somehow the gospel means tolerance. And, and I'm saying, no, the gospel means uh, truth in love. And, and, and understanding how to apply that. Yeah, because tolerance really is not spelled out in the Bible, as, yeah. as, I've, as I've read it. Well, and, and the concept of tolerance is usually um, that we don't really have fundamental truths and we don't really believe in certain things, that we just have to all be willing to compromise. And that's really a relatively new way of thinking. And there is a group of people, they're usually of the progressive ilk, who believe that any restraints need to be just ab- obliterated, and especially religious ones and moral ones, as long as we are doing what we feel we should do. Well, you, you can't, as a Christian, pray that way. I mean, and, and there are folks who are saying, no, I'm a Christian who prays that way. So that's where the speak the truth in love finally comes down to the, the whole idea of what are we doing here. And we, we as Lutherans especially are, are somewhat leery about mixing our prayers with other groups. Yeah. So I don't, you know, this to me wasn't a worship event. This was kind of an event on the hill. So I went to see what it was about. I went to the dinners. I went to some of the, just to hear what it was. And I was, like I said, there was kind of a caricature going on there. And, and, and so sometimes you need to be a part of it so that you can clarify it for for those who you know are on the hill uh, that are going through these things the other is there's some good folks there that need to be undergirded need to tell them hey go do that that you know keep on that kind of work because it'll be a blessing long term it's just when you get to an, a mass event like that that's mixing mm-hmm. government and politics and religion and all these different things you're like okay what are we really doing here and when it was a small event of Christians praying for one another and praying for their government and then praying that they might be civil and humane to each other in their in their political connections, that, that had 
purpose, and that had focus. Well, I'm thinking uh, back when I was living in California, uh, and there was a, a Jewish synagogue near where I lived that mm-hmm. had been uh, desecrated. And the community got together to help to repair the damage. And there was right. a big celebration that evening. And it was, there was Jewish, there were Christian, there were, you name it. There was even a Buddhist. Yeah. And we were all there together. And to an extent, we were praying and asking for guidance. Right. But Yeah, and I, I, this is where it gets dicey for us. Because if you mm-hmm. start to participate in those things uncritically, then, then the typical um, kind of application is, I guess we're all praying to the same God and we're all praying for the same things. And, and again, that's what I'm saying. I, I, I could already see in this prayer breakfast, we weren't. There were, there were several different speakers, some who were very, very focused, very, very truth-telling, who disagreed with the ones that just came before and fundamentally. So I guess my expectation is I'm not sure what the prayer breakfast really accomplishes for us, except it does tell us to be a people of prayer. It's kind of like a Thanksgiving declaration. We need to pray to God, you know, be thankful. You know, the president says we should have a day of thanks. I think it's a good thing. But then we've got to be as Christians willing to say why it really matters and and be specific about it. Otherwise, the kind of generic view uh, can be very destructive. Well, again, I think it boils down to our concept of the two kingdoms, right? which I don't think is shared by many other Christian groups. Well, you know, the funny thing about it is you have a lot of people, let's say even uh, what I would call progressive secularists who believe there should be a separation of church and state, you know, and I get a kick out of that. I say, well, you know, that's a Christian worldview. <laughs> Nobody else thinks that way. I tell them that. And they go, what do you mean? I say, well, if you're a secularist, you don't believe the church belongs at all. And if you're any other religious tradition, most other religious traditions believe the church is on top and the government really is supposed to. This idea of the church and the government and, and you know temporal and eternal things having a legitimate authority in all of our lives, in our culture, that's a Christian worldview. And so I say, wow, I didn't realize that you appreciated the Christian worldview. And you start there. And then you say, and so when I pray about what Caesar is supposed to do, what my governor is supposed to do, what my magistrate is supposed to do. And by the way, America flips that upside down and says Caesar is the citizen. So that actually adds another uh, layer of challenge to prayers. But when you do that and you say, and here's what God wants Caesar to do, then you pray for that stuff. You know, you pray that there might be civility and that, there, that the bad guys might be terrorized is not to do bad things and the good people might feel safe and that their rights undergirded and, and, you know, that there might be a relative civility, humanity and justice so we can all live in peace with one another. Well, yeah, I'm going to pray for that. And I think we can all get together and pray for that. But when you start praying for Caesar to love his enemies and, and, and you know, turn the other cheek, now you're mixing how God is at work in the world. And, and again, we need to clarify that for people. Well, you touched on that earlier in the, uh, in the discussion. I'd like to explore that a little bit further, where you were talking about where uh, Jesus said to turn the other cheek. He, right. You know, he never told that to Caesar. Right. He never told that to Pilate. But I hear that all the time. Like, you know, we need, we need policemen, for instance, who are more merciful and sensitive and, 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 you know, that turn the other cheek and, you know, they should be about that. And I'm going, no, that's not what you want the policeman to do. The policeman's the last bastion of force before chaos. Now, he shouldn't be the only bastion. You know, the mom and the dad should be the first level of son, you're not going to do that or daughter, you're not going to do that because you're my son, my daughter. But once that breaks down, about all you got left is the policeman saying you're not going to do that. And if that person gets overrun, then you have chaos. Well, the last thing you want the policeman to do at that level is to turn the other cheek and just let chaos run wild. And so you start, well, because that's the policeman's job. 
the policeman's not supposed to be a father. The policeman's definitely not supposed to be the pastor. You know, so you, you kind of start to unpack this two kingdom stuff and you go, wow, there's a lot of wisdom to it. Now let's pray for the policeman so that he's fair, he's just, and he, he's, he's not applying the laws to certain people, but not to others. But we don't ask him to turn the other cheek. And it's the same thing with all of our magistrates. We give them a charge for what we feel they're supposed to do. And then we pray that they do it. And again, God works through the left-hand kingdom, through right. through this. The the I'm not. I'll just use the word secular. Yeah, uh, temporal. I, yeah, you know temporal. the things. Yeah, the things that won't last. Yeah. And I love. And that's why I tell people, two kingdoms is a real easy teaching. It's it's just hard to apply. It's that God is at work. He's at work, but he preserves. That's his left-hand kingdom work, like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And he does it through vocations, and he does it through all kinds of different people's lives as they faithfully try to be decent people to one another. But that doesn't save us. That just pre- that preserves that prevents all hell from breaking loose, and it can get way way worse than it is today. And then he saves radically by sending his son and literally living our life, dying our death, and giving his life as a gift. That's his right hand king work. So I try to use all the phrases like he preserves and he saves, but you got to differentiate that work. Typically, the preserving work is where God says no and no further. But over here, he says, yes, <laughs> you know, but you differentiate that and you start to pray that the Caesar might do his role properly. And we who believe in Jesus might do our uh, work as well. What were some of the groups you saw there? Well, there's a lot of Christian groups there of all swaths. You know, that was really cool to see. Uh, a lot of the people I work with on the Hill were there. I met some of the founders uh, of this. You know, I just kind of hung around, looked around and, and, and saw some things. And it was nice to see the, the congressional leaders trying to figure out how to be people of prayer. I mean, that was kind of cool. And so it, it did help me because part of my job on the Hill is to encourage senators and congressmen. So when I go to their offices now, I might you know bring up the prayer breakfast and, and talk a little bit about it. And how can I be supportive to you and prayerful to you and and um, and how can I be pastoral to you and all these things? So it was good to be there for that reason. Well, let's discuss a little bit your role as the executive director of the okay. Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty. Right. Well, I mean, the stuff on the Hill, there's two things. I'm there to advocate for the fundamental things that we think all people need to defend, and that's religious liberty. And that's a fundamental thing. By the way, that's not an American ideal. That's a biblical ideal that America actually incorporated into their polity. And Jesus says, you know, or the Galatians says it's for freedom that you've been set free. And Jesus says, you know, my, you know, believe in me, that's that's where the real freedom's at. But the point is, is that even the freedoms we have in this culture, it's a natural extension of our, our view of things and God's view of things. Um, so I advocate for religious liberty, for the sanctity of life, because that's fundamental to everybody. Institution of marriage and um, and educational freedom. But even those two last things are religious liberty issues. So I do that. But I'm also on the Hill to encourage people who are fighting for those things. So pastorally, I have a role on the Hill. We just had a big event called the Two Kingdom Roundtable, where we had two lawyers who talked about the Bladensburg Cross. You know, mm, uh, yeah, I've been following that. Know. Well, they were the ones that argued before the Supreme Court, kind of won the ruling. And they talked to us about that and why it was important for us as Christians to actually follow through on some of these things and exercise our newfound kind of protections from that case. And so we had a bunch of two kingdom people. We, we say, if you believe in two kingdoms, come listen. And you don't have to be a Lutheran to believe in two kingdoms. There are more and more people saying that seems to be the way the Bible deals with things. And we're going, you're right. Mm-hmm. So those are the things I do on the Hill. The rest of it is education out among the church. And, and so, um, so I'm in D.C. doing one thing and I'm out among the church doing another thing. And, of course, I'm supposed to be a resource to the church as well. What about a resource to Congress? 
Well, that's, I mean, generally I do that on a kind of person by person basis. Now, I also do it corporately. We have a values action team in the Senate and a values action team in the House. And so corporately, I'm part of those groups. I work with a lot of other groups to defend these fundamental things. And that's what I tell people. This is left-hand kingdom work. You know, I'm, I'm, all I'm saying is these are fundamental to what it means to be human beings. And we're going to defend those things. I, the church still has to proclaim the gospel, uh, you know, maintaining our religious liberty, which I think is something we really should do, and protecting that. Once you have religious liberty, you still have religious liberty for what? To preach and teach the gospel and serve it into people's lives. But you can lose that liberty, and then oh, suddenly yeah. you're only speaking to yourself in your basement. We're not going to let that happen. Well, we're, we're, I think we're seeing the, uh, the results of that right now in this, in this country. Interestingly, we're using the phrase freedom of religion, not freedom of worship. Yeah. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring that up is that in the old Soviet Union, freedom of worship was guaranteed, but they defined worship as uh-huh. only within the church. Yeah. Within an established church. Well, and see, what the founding fathers, people got to understand the First Amendment was fundamental to who we are as a people. And they said, if we don't have freedom of speech and freedom of religion, and that means publicly to, to be who yeah. we are. Um, then we don't have a, we don't have freedom. Yeah, not just freedom of religion, but also uh, free exercise thereof. Yes, the extra, and that's the whole point. And and so again, our founding fathers they they understood that this is fundamental to liberty for all people. And I would challenge people who really believe that somehow we've kind of made a mess of it. You know, we haven't always practiced this stuff properly, but, but it's human. still one of the most tolerant countries in the world. Tolerance is a byproduct of good fundamentals. It is not a fundamental. And this is one of the things I saw at the prayer breakfast. It's almost like tolerance has become our fundamental understanding of prayer. Let's just get together, tolerate one another, and pray for each other. No, tolerance is a byproduct of good fundamentals and and foundational truths Mm -hmm. practiced in love for each other. And I would have liked to have seen a little more clarity of that. But, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons why we're supposed to be a part of it. Well, the idea of tolerance, that's that's another concept. Uh, For example, I have some gay friends Hmm? whom I like. Right. I don't approve. And I pray every day that they will see the light. Same thing with my Jewish friends. Well, I mean, look, every one of us is broken. I mean, that's probably the hardest thing to this two-kingdom theology stuff, because if we're doing God's left-hand kingdom work, there's a mission to that, too. We're saying God orders the world. He orders him. He, he creates us the way he creates us and all these different things. And so when you proclaim that, people say, well, okay, well, then you better live up to it. Well, we're just as broken as everybody yeah. else. And that's where then they say, well, then how can you proclaim this ordering? I mean, you proclaim that he creates male and female. You proclaim that marriage is his, his institution. You proclaim personal property rights and sanctity of life, you know, the seven the, the, the seven commandments that deal with the, how we treat one another. But you can't even live up to that. So, so why proclaim it? And that's kind of the point. We're saying, no, it's God's ordering of the world. And we've seen the blessings of following that ordering, but we're just as broken as you are. You know, and so again, even as we pray and even as we proclaim this stuff, we're proclaiming our need for a savior as well as everybody else's. And then we struggle with if God says, "I don't want you doing that," and we go, "But I like that, Lord." <laughs> we struggle with that too. Oh, every yeah, day, we do every too. day, absolutely. That's one of the problems with sin is that sometimes it's very attractive. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about sexuality, I mean, even, whether it's uh, homosexual, heterosexual, all that, we don't even talk that way. We just say, "How does God define healthy male, female, fem- healthy male, male, healthy female, female relations?" And then even there, uh, the idea of sex outside of marriage, well, it's because it's a powerful force that destroys outside of marriage. You know, so even there we're saying God, uh, most of the people struggle with that too. But God loves them and God orders them and God calls them to follow him. And so we go, yeah, we're just as broken as you are. But this ordering is for our good. 
I love Chesterton. Chesterton said, the more I read about Christianity, I kept feeling there's barriers being put up, barriers being put up. He said, and, but once I realized what those barriers are for, freedom ran wild. <laughs> and I love that because when those barriers aren't set up, you start running over cliffs. You start running into buzzsaws and the things you yearn for, intimacy, family, love, all that stuff goes with it because you're, you're fending for your life now. So I love that. When those barriers are properly put in place, freedom runs wild. <laughs> I never thought of it in those <laughs> that's terms. That's what he said. But I, can I love see it. That. I love it, yeah. I thought more in terms of anarchy. But, you know, that's part, part of the same. Or, or blindness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I'm saying, when you but when you bump in, think about, well, even blindness. At, at night when you bump into something when you're heading back to the oh, yeah. bed because you got up late. you know, or, <laughs> That early. happened to me last yeah, night. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but when you bump into that thing, when, the nice thing about it is if, if, if that's right where the stairs are and it wasn't there and you didn't bump into anything, you're mm. taking a tumble that you don't want to take. And I guess that's what Chesterton was saying. He said, God knows where to put those fundamental things yeah. in place. And he's doing because he loves you. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't want to go yeah, too far, go too with, far with that. <laughs> we are supposedly talking about the prayer breakfast. <laughs> yes, yeah, we are. We are. Uh, Is there any speculation on uh, the next one? I, you know, I don't know yet. And and like I said, it was an, an experience that I'm really glad I, I met some really good people there. And and I'm trying to I'll try to process this and see how we can be um, more useful in the midst of it all. It's, a, it's an idea that has merit, but I think praying the truth in love is going to be something I'm going to try to figure out as I talk to folks about the prayer breakfast going forward. And and your appearance there is is, is a way to spread the knowledge that you were there. Yeah, that's, this, and this, that's, 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 that's part of These are fundamental events in D.C., and I'm going to have to get, you know, some of it's going to be stuff I like, some of it's going to be stuff I'm like, ah, okay. Mm. But you got to take it, and being there and meeting some of the people there, that was very good. And then demonstrating that we are here, uh, we're a voice in the midst of this is also helpful too so it was a good first experience did you run into people who say golly i didn't know the lutherans were here um no not really um because there was such a swath of people i mean almost there was a whole lot of new people there too so uh, everyone in a lot of ways there's a newness uh, to this event every year because there's just so many people but i do run into that hey it's good to have you lutherans on the hill i run into that a lot well, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. No, we've been very positively received. Really have. Really have. Because yeah, I hear a lot of criticism. You know, yeah, from... I, but I tell people we have to learn how to exercise our citizenship because give to Caesar what is Caesar's. America has defined you as a citizen as the Caesar. So if, if you don't know how to exercise your citizenship for the sake of the gospel, someone's going to exercise it for you. Yeah. And so we, what we teach is how to exercise positively your citizenship for the sake of the mission of the church. We need to understand how to do that. Well, some Lutherans I've, I've run into are, are adamant on the fact that, uh, gee, you should not, we should not be involved at all in in government or in any policy decisions. Well, it, we're we're strictly. Let me just say this real quick. Then um, Walter Meyer uh, got almost got kicked off the air in 1944 for the Lutheran Hour. And if he would have taken that attitude, the government would have put him out of business, and there would have been no religious broadcasting on any radio or now TV or or wherever or on internet. And Walter Meyer said, "No, I have First Amendment rights," and so he argued Jeffersonian First Amendment rights to the FCC to keep all religious programming on the air. And that's actually being celebrated this year. The National Religious Broadcasters is celebrating Walter Meyer because he was one of the founders of the NRB. Well, if you wouldn't if we would not have done that back then, you would not have a sign called the Church of the Lutheran Hour on your lawn. Wow. Why would you ever not use your first amendment rights? I didn't know that. No, nah, I keep telling people. That's why I'm in DC. I left the pre- speaking of the Lutheran Hour to defend to do Walter Meyer's other legacy, which he was he knew how to engage this stuff for the sake of the gospel. 
Wow. Well, you certainly opened my eyes on a number of issues, uh, Greg, and uh, hopefully for our listeners as well. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. And I, I'm there in D.C. F- with you and for you, so keep me in your prayers. I need you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, Greg. You've been listening to Free to be Faithful, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for listening and supporting Free to be Faithful on Worldwide KFUO.